Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Dixie De La Tour. Well, I still don't know if I'm going to make it to your wedding, but do you think maybe you could get me a vibrator? <laughs> now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is the david rose orchestra behind me now this was a number one song in 1962 it was the fifth best-selling song of that year it's called the stripper and it puts us in the perfect mood for with body in brooklyn Four. Okay, so this is the second part of our 2018 collaboration show that we did with Dixie De La Tour, where Risk and Body Storytelling teamed up for an evening at the Bell House in Brooklyn. It was another legendary night of celebrating sexuality and saying fuck you to shame around sexuality. (laughs) We're going to start with a wonderful, brand new, this was their very first time sharing a story up on stage. And holy cow, what an amazing job. And what a remarkable name. This is ELG. You can find on Twitter at E underscore E L D J I. And here they are now with a story we call Surprised by Joy. Thank you so much. All right. 
So I've pretty much been a pervert my entire life, ever since I was a little kid. But I kept it inside because of the reactions of other people. I can remember being in sixth grade, and I was so excited about this awesome half-pony, half-man JPEG that I found. I'm, I'm older than I looked. Um, <laughs> and I was so excited to show it to my friend. And he didn't, was not impressed. He told the teacher. And I was grounded from using the Macintoshes in our classroom. Um, <laughs> I also remember being so excited to do this awesome history project on medieval torture implements. And then hearing like, Ew, why are you presenting on this? You're so weird. And I feel like my relationships were also kind of like this. I'm, you have to know about me, I'm sort of like a cat when it comes to physical affection. Like, it takes me a really long time to trust you. You have to touch me in like exactly the right way. I'm pretty guarded. So by this time in my 20s, kind of like early middle 20s, I'd really only had like a couple of long-term relationships. And in each case, in my first relationship, you know, you're learning about yourself in your 20s, I came out as queer and also poly. That was a big deal breaker in this relationship. In my next long-term relationship, I came out as transgender, and when we're talking about I am interested in taking testosterone, I'm hearing, but you're so pretty, why would you do that to yourself? Also a deal breaker. Um, so now I am single in New York City. I decide that I want to get out there and discover what the king scene is all about and discover a place where I can really be myself. So I'm going to munches, I'm going to play parties, and I'm going to classes. And it's at one of these classes that I meet Cambian. So if you imagine that we've got these kinky classes, they take place in these sort of rehearsal spaces. So next door there's like tap dancing going on. <laughs> There's like an improv group on the other side. Uh, and you're just like under these fluorescent lights. And generally the people who go to these classes are sort of like, you know, friendly neighborhood folk. And I am like heavily pierced and a big freak. So I'm looking at this guy across from me in this big circle. And he is sort of like this half man, half goat, if you can imagine. Um, he's got this pointy beard. He's also like... I don't know, 13 years older than me. Um, but somehow we're like making eye contact and I think this guy might be interested in me. So he, we kind of like meet up after the class. And at first I'm a little weary because there's this thing, especially maybe people who are socialized as female know, like if a cis guy um, is interested in you and you start a conversation with them, sometimes you just like can't get rid of them when you realize like what a creep they are. Um, but you know what? He's like a friendly creep. So I feel comfortable riding. <laughs> Uh, the subway home with him in the same direction and we like become kinky Facebook fet life friends and you know I'm like whatever but then I start going through his profile and it seems like you know he's a really big nerd which is a turn on but he's also like really into black metal which I find very hot um, also it seems like he might be a really big masochist which for me is very exciting because I'm like a really sick fuck um, <laughs> Uh, so that's exciting. So we kind of like to, you know, flirt back and forth over FetLife, whatever, and we agree to set up a play date. Uh, so our first date is at this place called Paddles, um, which if you don't know it, is sort of like if a dungeon was a dive bar. Um, <laughs> it's like super musty and dusty inside. <laughs> 
and it's open to the public, so there's often like creepy men lurking around. So I'm here on this like first date with Gavian. Uh, the only safe place is this one like dungeon cell area. It's got this like huge iron door, like this full length mirror, and I can like shut us up together in this little space. So I'm, you know, kind of like this is like my first real like intimate play date I have with someone so I'm feeling like really kind of nervous uh, and fluttery and you know I was just out of all those long-term relationships like this is all kind of new to me but I have to be like the top right like I'm the one who's in charge I need to be confident so I kind of like turn away to kind of get my tools get myself centered and he kind of like does his own thing and when I turn back um, he's completely nude which you know, those long-term relationships. This is the first, like, completely new man I've seen in a really long time. And also, he has this, like, really awesome penis piercing that I've never seen in real life before. And so I'm, like, trying to be polite and just, like, not look at it, which is weird. Um, but, you know, I kind of, like... <laughs> Because, you know, we're whatever. Uh, uh, but I get a hold of myself and I'm like, okay, I, like, push him up against the wall. And I've got, at this point, you know, I've got these little cheap 99 cent store plastic clothespins and we're both feeling kind of awkward. We're like, you know, giggling and like being weird, first date, whatever. Um, but as I start to kind of caress his neck and apply these like colorful clothespins, I pinch up his skin and put them around. He starts to look like this sort of frilly lizard creature. <laughs> and we're just laughing together and the nervousness kind of goes away and I'm like, okay, now I've got these amazing lifetime guarantees stainless steel clothespins that I've never used before but I'm like how do you feel about doing a zipper and he's like scared because what a zipper is is where you take a line and you pinch all these clothespins on and then you grab the line and you rip it off all at once so I do it of course I <laughs> I'm like caressing the side of his ribs which is like super tender and I'm clipping on these heavy duty clothespins with this line and then I'm like okay are you ready and he's like uh huh um, and then I rip it off and I just see like his eyes get real wide and then they like squint shut and he like collapses against the wall and he's obviously in like blinding pain and I feel just like so powerful I'm like at the top of a roller coaster and there's so much adrenaline on Yes, I am the top. And then I look down and <laughs> those lifetime guarantee clothespins have like ripped off some of the flesh from the side. <laughs> I'm like, oh shit. Uh, that wasn't supposed to happen. Uh, <laughs> but I'm in charge, right? So I'm like, ooh, let's go look at it in the mirror. So I put my arm underneath his shoulders and I kind of like breed him over to the mirror and I'm sort of like caressing the wounds. We're looking at it together. We're like having this moment. And um, all of a sudden, like, he slips out of my arms, his knees buckle, and he's like down on the concrete floor. I'm like, oh shit, what, what the fuck is going on? I like kneel down beside him. He's kind of like floats open his eyes and goes, oh, I fainted. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck? But I grab a blanket. I like, you know, cuddle him. We manage to recover the evening. And it, it turns out this is something that happens to him all the time, um, <laughs> which I discover as we continue to go out on play dates together. So then, you know, we're like going to parties, doing fun stuff. Um, we start, you know, like doing vanilla stuff together, right? Like we'll have study dates or we'll like go out to eat. And then I find myself like staring into his eyes across the dinner table or whatever. Um, and then all of a sudden we're like sexy texting each other um, where 
you know, I'm the big bad wolf and he's like this cute little squirrel um, and I'm chasing him through the forest and I'm going to eat him up. Do you guys want to know what that sounds like? (laughs) All right. (laughs) All right. So this is me. The wolf growls as the squirrel. (laughs) His heart beating fast. Little tastes of blood have aroused his hunger mightily. He pounces on the squirrel, rolling over her body, enjoying the feeling of his hairiness and thinking about how good it'll feel when she's inside of him, filling him up. (laughs) Uh, So that's fun. Uh, and in, in the midst of like all these vanilla activities, um, I find myself also like doing cute stuff, like wanting to hold his hand, or like having sleepovers where we're just cuddling and watching Netflix. Um, <laughs> and he has this sort of like childlike demeanor that's so vulnerable, and it makes me f- want to like ravage him, but also like nurture him and take care of him. One day I'm like scrolling around by Petco and I'm like, oh, let me take a look at the dog collars inside. Um, Because I don't know if you know, like in the scene, there's this like master slave thing and like getting a collar is a really big deal for a slave. But we don't really have that kind of dynamic. So I'm kind of just going for more of like a jokey thing. I find this like cute little pink dog collar with like little black skulls on it. I'm like, oh, this will be really funny to give to him, right? Um, so, but when I give it to him, he looks at me with this like literal puppy dog eyes. Um, and he just like gets this look on his face and he kneels down in front of me and he's like, will you put it on me? (laughs) Yeah, that's what I thought. (laughs) I was like, oh shit, this joke just got real. So I do, you know, and as I'm like clicking that little plastic clip around his neck, I'm like, oh, like suddenly I'm a daddy and this is my boy, right? And it's so natural that this is happening and it's amazing. And this is going great until one night. um, So I'm kind of lying in bed. You know, we've been seeing each other for a while, but I'm alone and I'm noticing this like kind of fluttery feeling in my stomach and it doesn't go away. I'm like trying to figure out is this indigestion, what's going on? (laughs) But then I like look a little deeper and all of a sudden it's like I have been unhinged from the gravity of the earth. I am just like floating in space. My brain is going crazy. I'm like, shit, I I think I have feelings for this person. (laughs) And I'm like, no, no. Because this is supposed to be about, you know, lust and sadism and kinkiness. And suddenly I'm just, all of the insecurities that I have felt from all of the other relationships where I ever told someone I love them come flooding back to me. And I'm just thinking, what if I'm not enough? What if when I cut myself open and I reveal myself for who I truly am to this person, what if he doesn't feel the same way I do? And in this moment, I just feel so afraid. I don't know what to do. But later that week, I have 
a play date with him. Uh, so I just like kind of stuff this stuff back inside and I go out to this party on Long Island. So <laughs> if you've ever like been to a party outside of Manhattan in the city, it's like a little different, right? <laughs> So we're like driving out to this deserted industrial area <laughs> in a place I, I don't even know what it's called. And I, we pull up to this sort of abandoned looking building and we go inside and it's all like neon lights and like cheesy carpeting, which turns out to maybe be like a dubious choice because it, this is a swingers club. Um, I noticed like the cis porn like playing all the monitors and the signs that say like no single men allowed. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this is not the usual kind of kinky place I'm, I'm used to being in. But you know what? Like I look fucking hot, right? Like I'm here. <laughs> with my queer slave and we are about to fuck up this like cis straight person's getaway in the Long Island, okay? <laughs> so I'm like, got him stripped down to his undies. He'll, I'm like leading him around this party on a leash um, and I'm just like really getting into things. So I find like this perfect spot and I kneel him down and I pull out my phone book. So... That's one use for those stacks you might see around Manhattan. They do come in handy every once in a while. So I roll up the phone book and I just like, with my whole body, I'm like wailing on him. Like I'm hitting him in the chest and this phone book is making this like whoop, whoop, whoop sound throughout the dungeon. And I, I feel like people must be watching us because how can you not pay attention to this? But I don't even notice because I'm just like so focused in on him. So I'm wailing on him with this phone book. And then... I pull out my sack gloves, which are these like lead weighted gloves, and I peel them on my hands, and then I'm punching him. I'm punching him in the chest, and I'm punching him in the thighs, and he's just taking it. He's like swaying back and forth. I'm punching him in the arms, and I'm punching him in the face more gently. <laughs> and then I reach down into my bag, and I pull out this big silicone cock, and I say, you see this cock? And he's like, uh-huh. I'm like, this cock was in my ass earlier. And now I'm going to beat you with it. And his eyes just get real wide. And he's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm hitting him in the face. And I just noticed, like, as I'm wailing on this kid, like, <laughs> there's this, like, softening around the eyes. And his lips are trembling. And I'm like... You know, this is not unusual for him to cry, but there's like, I don't know, something going on. So I, I like, you know, stop punching him. I put my cock down. <laughs> and I take his face in my hands and I'm like checking in, like, you know, what are you feeling? What's going on? And he's like, oh, I'm thinking. And, you know, he's off in subspace. Like the words are not coming to him, but I just give him a moment. I'm like, what are you thinking? And he says, I'm thinking, I love you. <laughs> and at first I'm like a little surprised, <laughs> but then all that surprise is gone. And instead there's this feeling of serenity that just comes up through me. It feels like I'm rooted in the earth and it rises up through my chest and my heart and in my mind. 
And I just think, this person loves me. And I love him. And I'm not afraid anymore. Thank you. This is Risk. This is Anna Ash covering Lucinda Williams behind me now. And we just heard from ELG. For our final story for this week's episode, we're going to do something a little unusual. You know, sometimes when a storyteller shares on our stage, they come away with mixed feelings. You know, they might feel that some parts of their story went over beautifully and they're very encouraged by reactions that they got from people. But they feel a little weird about how maybe some parts didn't come out the way they'd intended. So at our big risk slash body show that we did just a few weeks ago at the Bell House in Brooklyn, the final storyteller was Dixie De La Tour herself. Dixie is the host of the Body Storytelling Show and Podcast based in San Francisco, and she's a hero of mine. She's been an inspiration to us here on Risk from the very start. Dixie struggled in the workshopping process of of bringing this story to life because it started to really touch on some stuff in her past, some stuff in her psyche that was, you know, very, very loaded. It's a common thing that happens to people when they do risk. And I thought it would be interesting to have a chat with Dixie about the entire experience of doing this show again this year, preparing this particular story, getting up on stage and having mixed feelings about how it went, And so what we're going to do is we're going to run a little bit of that chat before we hear the story, and then we're going to run a little bit of that chat after we hear the story. So we're going to have a 
Dixie and Kevin sandwich here, <laughs> where the two of us kind of unpack this entire experience, and in the middle of it all, you will hear the story itself as it was recorded at the Bell House in Brooklyn at the Big Risk Slash Body Show of 2018. So, without further ado, here are myself and Dixie De La Tour. You know, people often say to me, do you get nervous? Do you get nervous before risk shows? And my answer is always, I get nervous before some. This particular body slash risk show that we do, we've done it a few times in San Francisco now and a couple times in Brooklyn now. I get nervous before it. And I was trying to think, why is that? And I think it's just because it's so preciously meaningful i think that what it is is that both you and i grew up feeling traumatized for feeling like we were freaks you know yeah this show that we do every year is a little bit more so than most shows that we do just clearly a celebration of oh my god just relax it's okay be yourself try that thing you want to try you know Why why does being yourself, like what you just said, this is when I can really be myself, and you're like, and it makes me more nervous at the same time. Yeah. Like, I think a complex, like a psychological complex is something that you never totally get over. You know, I think that you master it, especially at certain points in your life where you're like, yeah, I'm feeling really good about how I'm being myself, et cetera, et cetera. But then there are other points where you just get those feelings of shame and insecurity and, oh my God, what if people find out this about me or that kind of stuff kicks in. And so I think I'll spend my whole life in a tug of war between pride in being a nonconformist and worry about it. I have a story I tell sometimes. I had been a pervert, like a secret pervert for a long time. And I'd go out to parties and dressed in leather corsets with my boobs mostly out. And every time I'd come in at six or seven o'clock in the morning, I was always afraid I was going to run into my neighbor's or run into my landlord, because I lived in like a duplex. I was like, please, just don't let him be coming out right now. Just don't let him be, because like, God knows, the outfit was crazy, you know? Uh-huh. And every time I'd hold my breath, and one day I come in, and it's seven o'clock in the morning, and I, I take the outfit off, I put my sweats on, I take my dog out for his morning walk, and I'm on the panhandle in Golden Gate Park, and <laughs> and I'm just like, kind of like feeling shame i'm just feeling like i'm so tired of feeling what if people know this is my life you know Mm. go back in just turn the tv on to fall asleep and popeye comes on (laughs) Uh and popeye is singing i am what i am and i'm just like you know what you have been alive for so long it's about time you just fucking accept it this is it it's not gonna change and would you know that there's this little old lady who lived in my neighborhood She's like 80 years old. She always wore like four house coats on top of each other. Mm. And she was always the neighborhood busybody, always sweeping the street, even though it's clean and stuff like that. So she'd always say hi to me all the time. About a week later, she stops me and she goes, what's going on with you? And I'm like, what? She goes, something has changed. Mm. And I'm like, I, what do you mean? She goes, all of a sudden you're luminous. Oh. 
I was like, oh my God, it shows. Like, I accepted myself and it shows. Oh, God. You originally were thinking of doing this Camp John Water story, which is a really hilarious story. We have to have you do that some other time. But then you said, or Kevin, I could tell this story that really digs into some real heart and soul stuff for me. And of course, you knew I was going to say, uh, <laughs> Dixie, I, let's go for the heart and soul one. And then when you and I started working on the story and going deeper and deeper, I just kind of took me back to that place, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, you started to struggle a bit emotionally with it. Yeah. I was telling you, you know what? Don't go further than you feel like you can go. Because one of the things I always tell people is that storytelling changes over time. Like, you can retell a story, you can tell it in different formats, you can tell an hour-long version or a 10-minute version, yada, yada, yada. Right. So I just wanted to make sure that you were okay emotionally sharing as much as you could at that particular time. You know what I mean? I didn't want to push you too far for that particular So night. here's the thing about that. I love you. And I want to please you. And when you asked me to dig deeper, even though you let it go, I kept doing it. I kept going, nope, nope, Kevin asked for that. And he's right. A great story has details. So you have to go into details. Yeah. Which means yeah. you have to go into that room. Yeah. And when I went in that room, I really started falling apart. And you kept going, you don't have to do that. I'm like, I know I don't. But still, I kept trying. Rupert's funeral was beautiful. He had just found his community, the kinksters and the perverts, just a year or two before he was killed in a freak motorcycle accident. And we were all so shocked. So when they held his wake in West Oakland, I went and I listened to people get up and tell stories about him. And I was kind of surprised by this divide in the people who were telling stories. His family and his co-workers were telling about how he'd always been kind of a depressed person. And then his community was talking about how, are we talking about the same person? He was so happy. He just found his thing when he died. And I left that wake thinking, life's too short. You've got to do the things you dream while you can. So I headed home and... Got back to my house, and my partner, Bent, was sitting on the couch watching Harry Potter because he's always watching Harry Potter. <laughs> and I said, honey, I know your dad's been really sick. And I was just wondering, if he had to travel, do you think there's any chance we could get him out here? And he hits pause on the movie, and he goes, what are you thinking? And I tell him about Rupert's Wake. And I say, I just think that our families don't get us and it's really important to me that your dad gets to come to San Francisco and my family will not come because San Francisco is full of fruits and nuts and flakes like the only way we will get them here is to say we're having a wedding and you and I don't care about a wedding we're domestic partners it's not important to us but I think it's the only way 
that we're going to get them out here all together so they can meet finally. So that when my mom calls and she says, how's Pam doing? She's actually going to know your mom, Pam. I feel like I need that. And he says, you're right. Let's do it. So I've just proposed. And he's just said yes. I hadn't thought any farther than that. So I call my venue in San Francisco and I say, hey, we've decided to do this big event. Do you have any dates available? And the only date they had available was three weeks away. And I say, well, I'll take it. And I hang up the phone and I go, fuck, I guess we're doing this thing. So I start calling the family. I call my mom and I say, Mom Benton and I have decided to get married. And she says, oh my God, I can't believe married. That's, you're doing something normal. <laughs> and I cannot explain to you a lifetime of what normal would look like, but I have always been abnormal. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people come up to me at body all the time and they go, you know, considering what you do for a living, you must have been raised by the most sex-positive family. And that's so far from the truth. Like, sex is something you never talk about. Like, when, I, when my mother found out that my friends Jeff and Steve were gay, my childhood friends, she'd forbid me to see them because homosexuality is sick and disgusting. When they said we were going to take sex ed in high school, she refused to sign the permission slip. And I had to go to the library all by myself. Well, everybody else learned about penises and vaginas and where babies came from. A couple of weeks after I graduated from high school, my mom packed my suitcase. And she drove me to the YWCA. And she said, you don't live with us anymore. This is where you live now. And I was just this scared kid. I was thrown in this building full of drug addicts, and the worst for her would be the lesbians and the prostitutes. And it was just a thin door between me and all of that. So now it's time to start getting everybody out there. I call my brothers. I call a brother in North Carolina, my brother Keith, who lives out in Santa Barbara. I call my brother who lives in West Virginia. And they all decide they're going to come. Even my biological dad, who left when I was two. And this is great. They're going to have the context they need for the rest of their life when they can't travel anymore. They'll have had this moment meeting the other family. But the thing that was most important to me was that my Aunt Dot come. Because my Aunt Dot was the one who'd always accepted me just the way I was. When everybody else was telling me I was wrong, Dot was buying me leopard one-piece bathing suits when I was a kid. And she was just like, be who you are. So my mom says, you know, Dot's not going to be able to come because she's really bad with money and she's not going to have enough. And I said, well, instead of a wedding present, I just want you to get Dot out here. That's all I ask for. And while we're waiting to find out if that's going to happen, Dot calls and she says... Well, I still don't know if I'm going to make it to your wedding, but do you think maybe you could get me a vibrator? <laughs> <laughs> and 
And I say, hell yeah, I can get you a vibrator. And I set about filling a giant grocery bag with every kind of vibrator. And then I start thinking, well, Dot's favorite flavor is dark-haired men. So I think I'm going to work on having somebody other than me give it to her. When my mom calls and she says, I'm going to use my credit card points and Dot will be coming to the wedding, I call my friend, a sex educator, Yoni, and I say, would you be willing to give a giant bag of vibrators away to my Aunt Dot at my wedding? And he's like, yes, I will. (laughs) So I've got the venue. I've called the family. They've arranged for their plane tickets. I've only got three weeks to do this. So I put out an online invite and I contact my free community and I say we're doing this thing and they know me they know I can't do this all my by myself with that short a time so they take over and say what do you need and my friend Carla gets online and she does a spreadsheet for southern potluck and everybody's signing up to bring dishes and my friend Lil P starts arranging for you know, decorations and flowers for the table and color-coordinated slobber towels for my dog because my dog's got to be there. (laughs) And people are starting to RSVP and it's coming really fast. And initially my friend, Polly Superstar, who was the founder of Kinky Salon, one of the largest sex parties in the world, had RSVP'd no. And she called me two weeks before the wedding and she says, Dix, so... I've given it some thought, and I have a new man, and I am madly in love with him. And I've decided to change our plans, and we are gonna come to your wedding. Because it's really important to me that Adam get to meet our amazing community. So, we are gonna be at your wedding, and he's gonna get to meet all of our freaks, all in one place. And I go, wait a minute, did my wedding just become a sex party meetup? Because my family's going to be there. And she's like, you're not fooling anybody. You love it. And I kind of do. But I can't help but realize that I've been estranged from my family my whole life. And now it's happening. My biological family and my freak family are all going to be together in the same room. And it's coming up really fast. And so, pretty soon it's the day before the wedding. And the families start getting off the plane. They all start arriving in SFO about the same time. My mom from Virginia, Aunt Dot from West Virginia, the brothers from assorted places, Bent's dad from Ohio, Bent's mom and stepfather from Arizona. And we carpool them all to Max's Opera Cafe out by the airport. And they meet for the first time over this long buffet table and they're hugging and they're shaking hands and they're saying hello and my mom says is your kid as weird as my kid is (laughs) and Ben's mom goes yes and they really connect over that (laughs) and they talk about how they have no idea what they're going to see tomorrow and it's San Francisco and they're kind of nervous about what they're going to be walking into And Bent and I swap knowing glances over the table because all the money and all the time is for this moment, for them to meet face to face. And it's going pretty well. So now it's the day of the wedding. 
and I take my mom and my Aunt Dot to the venue, and I've arranged for my friend Sister Flora Goodtime to do their makeup. She's a sister of perpetual indulgence. To my mom, that looks like a cross between a clown and a drag queen. And she's sitting them down, and mom's not really sure about what's going on. I've told her, mom, you only like to wear gray or white, but I like color. So our wedding colors are orange or turquoise, so I'd like for you to buy something. And she'd bought, she'd gone to the thrift store, and she'd bought like this orange sheath dress. Aunt Dot's wearing bright blue. And my mom sits down in the chair, and she's like, I don't like makeup. I don't like the way it feels. And so she only lets Flora put on just the tiniest dust and of makeup on her face. And then Aunt Dot sits down, and she lets Flora just go to town on her. And Mom goes, how come Dot looks so much better than I do? And I said, because Dot did what the drag queen told her to. That's why. Everybody's there. The team is starting to set up. They're accepting the southern potluck dishes. They're, you know, they've decorated with flowers and pennants that say Dixie and Bent. And the families come in and they choose these tables up near the front. And they're like huddled together because they only know each other and their in-laws-to-be that they just met the day before. And then the guests start coming in. I have sent out an email when Polly sent me her message. And I have said, you know what? I've always been wrong. So I guess it's time they see who we are. And you know what? I think it's time for them to see my friends, my amazing friends. So I want you to come to this wedding as who you authentically are, whatever that means to you. So in comes this parade of porn clowns who are wearing... (laughs) They're wearing grease paint and tutus and leather harnesses and red rubber noses and Tantra teachers who are wearing brilliant turquoise saris. And there's sex educators who are wearing rainbow wigs and stiletto heels and porn stars who are rocking way too much cleavage and tiny little skirts. And the family is a little bit taken aback. (laughs) The perverts are all hugging hello and greeting each other. And then they look at the family and they start approaching them very quietly so they don't frighten them. (laughs) And they come up and they sit with the families and they say, Are you Bent's dad? Oh my God, we love your kids so much. Are you Dixie's mom? You must be so proud that she's a community leader and that she does such important work. We love your kids. Thank you for giving birth to them. And the families exchange confused looks. (laughs) So now it's time for the ceremony. We didn't want a best man and a matron of honor. We had asked Bent's best friend, Marley, who had just transitioned to a female identity and who also identified as a kitten (laughs) to be our best kitten. (laughs) They take my 160-pound St. Bernard Quake, the best dog, 
and they lead them up to the stage to the officiant, who is a Jewish Easter bunny. (laughs) And Bent and I walk up together, and we stand there in front of the Easter bunny. (laughs) He says something, and I say something, and I'm not really sure what I say. I think I said, you know, I never really felt like I deserved love. And we've been together about seven years now. And I'm starting to lean in and accept that you're not going anywhere. And it feels really good. And on our first date, I asked you about yourself. And you talked about your grandma, Marge. And you said she'd been gone 20 years, but you still missed her so much. And you sobbed. And I held you and I said, Dude, you can't do shit like this on a first date. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure you need therapy. (laughs) But even though it was shocking to watch, we just never were apart from that moment because it was so raw and real. And that's my favorite thing in the world. And so, somehow, there's this blur of activity. There's the southern potluck, and there's pulled pork, and cornbread, and fried chicken, and collard greens, and people are eating, and people are starting to tell stories. My friend Leo sets up a microphone on the reception floor, and he says, let's give our best wishes to the bride and groom, and The freaks start creeping up to the mic. (laughs) At first, it's just like, we love you guys so much. And they tell little inside jokes. And then it starts lining up. People start doing it more and more. And pretty soon, my brother Jay gets up, and he gets on the mic. He's the first one in the family. And he says, you know, we just want you guys to have happiness, and we love you. And then my dad gets up, and he kind of stumbles up to the mic, and I'm afraid he's going to fall over because he's really old. And I go stand next to him, and he says, I'm really sorry I've had a stroke, and I'm really hard to understand, but I'm just so happy that I could be here for this day. And it takes a long time for him to get it out. And by the end of it, everybody's crying. My brother Keith gets on the mic, and he says, oh my God, and he looks at me and he goes, you are the author of your own story. And I think, who the fuck talks like that? (laughs) And I guess the answer is my brother Keith. (laughs) And then my mom gets on the mic. My mom has a terrible fear of public speaking. And she bursts into tears as soon as she looks at the microphone. And she just goes, Oh my God, you people are amazing and this is the best party I've ever been to in my life, as she cries. So we're coming up toward the end and I'm not going to throw a bouquet. So I throw a rubber chicken. 
time Wonder Woman catches it. <laughs> and I just get this impulse and I grab the photographer and I say, everybody in the street. And I start leading them out to the middle of Mariposa Avenue. Takes a minute to get them all out there and we're blocking traffic the whole time. It's like 150 of my nearest and dearest, my family and my friends, standing in the middle of the street and nobody honks because it is free community at its best. And the next day, we put them on the plane and send them home. And they call and say, just want to let you know we made it home safe. Somehow they keep calling. Like, I hadn't talked to my brother in five or six years. I hadn't talked to the twins in forever. And they're just calling to check in and say, that was the most amazing party. My mom and I are starting to talk pretty regularly. And it's about a month after the wedding. And she calls one day and I said, Mom, I can't talk right now. I'm about to do a show. And she says, oh, I'm sorry, honey. Well, I hope you have a good show. I've been doing this for over 10 years and she has never said, have a good show. And I say, Mom, do you know why I do what I do? And she sounds interested and she says, no, why? And I say, because you married Johnny Fields when I was 12 years old. And when I was 14, I told you he was sexually assaulting me. You called me a liar. And I told you again when I was 27 and again when I was 35. And I wasn't believed. And I kept thinking, I wish there was a place to tell stories and be heard and to be believed. And it didn't exist, so I created it. And I hold my breath. And I'm expecting what I've always gotten. And she says, when did you tell me about Johnny? I don't remember that at all. And I say, I can tell you exactly where I was. I was 14 years old, we were standing in the dining room, and you said that one of the neighbors in the trailer park had come to you and said that I said that he kept coming in my bedroom. So you said, has he ever touched you inappropriately? And I said, yeah. That fucking Clint Eastwood looking motherfucker used to get drunk, and when I'd hear him coming home, I'd lock myself in my bedroom. And he'd come to the door, and he'd try and get that door open and he'd whisper to me, and I'd just wait. And one night, you got home at like 2 a.m., and you woke me up banging on that door, and you said, what if there was a fire? You don't ever lock this bedroom door. And he was standing in the hallway behind you just staring at me. And suddenly, she's crying, and she says, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I never hurt you. And I go, Mom, can we talk tomorrow? I gotta go do my job. And we hang up and she immediately texts. And she says, I'm so sorry. I wish you were still alive so that I could kill him for you. And I just look at my phone 
my first thought is, I thought how horrible it must be when your parents die. And when you get the news, how that must feel. And my fear had always been when I got the call and my mom was gone, my first thought was going to be good because she never stood up for me. She never believed me. But she did. It took 35 years, but she finally heard me. Mom, if you're listening to this, I know this is a hard story to hear, but I feel like it's really important that I tell it. You believed me. And I know now, when the day comes and I get that call, I will grieve for you. Thank you for believing me. Thank you, Rupert, for showing me that life is too short. And thank you, Mom, for teaching me that it's never too late. It's never too late to tell your story and to finally be heard. Thank you. A lot of people would probably be surprised to hear that both you and I, as the ringleaders of these shows, also have stories where we're like, I don't know, that feels a little too risky. I don't know if I'm ready. You know, like, yeah, I mean, I talk about that in therapy every fucking session. (laughs) Am I ready to tell this story? And my therapist is always saying, oh, you can tell that five years from now or 10 years from now or wherever, you know? Whereas I know that as the producer of Risk, I'm like, no, you should put your foot to the fire and tell that pretty soon. Well, every time you watch somebody be brave and tell something that's so real... You watch it and go, why am I hiding a part of myself? Like, I should be as brave as that person was. We feel inspired by the people we work with in Story Coach every single time. I watch them doing, and it makes me just open up on stage and tell things that at the end of the night, I have such a vulnerability hangover. I'm just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. You just told hundreds of people something. Are you ready to have that out in the world? Then the next day I wake up and I go, it's out there, you know, and then you get the fan mail that says, holy shit, I can't believe you talked about this thing. Like you share your secrets. Other people go, oh, my God, we're allowed to talk about that. And they open up too, and it totally yeah. pays off every single time. But it's so scary. And the surprising thing is, is that that job is never completely done. You know, you come out about something or let a little bit of a certain mask you're used to wearing fall and then you're like, oh, and there's there's another thing that I've never told anybody. You know what I mean? Like, it's an ongoing process of being like, oh, here's a thing I've never even told myself about, you know? Like, the, the, when you start opening that stuff up, more stuff will start occurring to you of, oh, and if I'm being really honest. Yeah. I had one person one time who told me that, She came to the show. She listened to all the stories. She and her husband had gone on a date there. They came home at the end of the night. 
she sat him down on the edge of the bed and she goes, and now we're going to have our next storyteller at Body Storytelling. And she told him the story of how they'd had a hall pass a year before to go off for a week and do anything they wanted from each other. And she told him the story about hooking up with the cowboy at Burning Man and the crazy sex they had and this totally different interaction she had with a person. And it had happened a year ago. They lived in the same mm-hmm. house and talked 24 hours a day. But it was only after listening to stories that she went, because life doesn't give us this perfect opportunity to say the thing that's difficult until mm. you hear somebody being brave telling a story and suddenly mm-hmm. you're like, and now, it, the time is now for me to tell my story too. And he said, that was my favorite story of the night. Like, he dealt with his jealousy he just listened to it and went wow and he told her about his adventure during the hall pass and she was like that would never have happened if we hadn't gone to body storytelling that makes me so proud that people are connecting in these deeper ways because of the stories you and i are working on with them kevin just makes me so proud there was a guy at the risk body show in brooklyn who had that look in his eyes and i was like you know hang on and he was like yep and i walked up to him and he was just like this show was 10 times what I was hoping it was going to be. Oh. Like, I've never I've never seen Body. You don't come to the East Coast very much. I was so excited when I heard that Risk and Body were doing a show in Brooklyn. And this experience, and he goes, the things you talked about in your story, about community coming together, about, like, people don't understand what pervert community is. Mm. They don't understand. It's not just about sex or kink. It's about this deeper connection with people. I've shown you my true self. Right. You know, they have this just compassion for each other that's different than anywhere else. And he goes, you talked about that in your story. Yeah. And I can't believe that's the thing that I've always pulled out of listening to your podcast and you somehow brought it to the stage tonight as though you knew that's what stood out to me. And I was like, that was affirming. But also, you were you were worried that you would just flat out fucking lose it and not be able to reel it back in. I kind of did. And I'd worked on this story, and I was really happy to where I'd gotten it in the amount of time that we'd worked on it. It's like, now it's as done it's going to be. You're going to tell that story. And then I got on stage and started disassociating. How did that feel and what so was going through your body and head? Yeah, it's kind of like... It's not like you're floating over your body. It's just like you're not in your body. Mm. It's just kind of like the main effect for me is it feels like if I were sitting in a chair, it would feel like my chair was falling over. That's what it feels like. You just feel unbalanced. It's almost like you have vertigo. I feel like I was going to fall down through that whole story. Wow. And at one point, I opened my mouth, and I don't know if it's on the recording or not. I opened my mouth, instantly thought, Oh, my God, I'm going to throw up on this stage, which has never happened to me in my life. Oh, my God. And a burp came out. (gasps) Really? And I went, holy shit, I just burped into a mic in front of 300 people. I cannot believe that. Just It just came out of my body. A lot of people said to me that they were crying at certain points in your story. People who had, because I was backstage, but people who were in the audience said to me afterwards that it brought tears to their eyes. And then, yeah, I was there to witness this universal standing ovation, which as supportive and loving and engaged as risk audiences are, 
that almost never happens. Like just, you know, the whole room just suddenly rising to their feet and, and giving a huge standing ovation. Have you listened to the recording of you telling the story at the Bell House? I have. Um, it was a little hard for me to listen to, so I even listened to it once. Uh-huh. And then just sat there and did the thing where you're like, that is not the story that I wanted to tell. It's a great really? story, but uh-huh. it's like there were so many more pieces that I felt that I wanted to say on stage. So I hate to be the sort of person who says, there's a piece that's important and I'm not going to tell you what it is. Mm. But one of the things I did when I worked so hard on that story was I was like, why would someone in the audience who doesn't know the characters in this story believe that my mom didn't believe me? What is the mm. piece that makes clear? Because our, you know, our natural inclination is going to be to go, she heard you. Ah, I worked yes. really hard to go, what's the element that makes someone who's not me understand the conversation when she called me as I was getting ready for the show, where she said, have a good show. When I heard her put it together on the phone, what she was saying was me sitting there in shock going, oh my God, she is getting it right now. The hard part about that was I put that into the story that was going to go on stage. It didn't come out because of the disassociation, but that felt like the biggest betrayal. That felt like a betrayal to my mother. And I had just healed this relationship, you know, a lifetime I'm not getting along, and we had just healed it. And I'm like, and this is going to be the thing that severs it forever. Because that's telling everybody who listens to Risk and Body something Mm. that she doesn't want shared outside of, you know, the building she lives in for sure. Right. I felt like that was a betrayal. And that was part of why this story was so hard. At the same time, I believe... That if you don't tell these stories, then other people can't listen to them and go, that happened to me, but I thought I was the only one. I thought I caused it. That's where shame comes from. I did something. I don't know what it is. Yeah. It's only when I started telling stories like this one, that's when people would come up to me and go, that happened to me and I never knew anybody else. Nobody talks about this. If one person talks about it, everybody else goes, oh, my God, it wasn't me. If it happened to her, then it can't have been me. It's a very similar story. So I feel like it's really important to tell stories like this. Yeah. And I don't want to indict anybody in that story other no. than the person who's <laughs> other than the person who's responsible for sexual assault. I don't want anybody else to feel like you like. I didn't want to indict my mother. Yeah. No, I, I I felt that compassion of you toward your mom. I think that from the audience's perspective, sometimes those parts of stories, you know, where you're like, gosh, if I reveal too much of what this other person said or what was going on in their life, it doesn't necessarily always need to be there in the story you know i feel like your story made emotional sense to us without you having to reveal too much about your mother other than that your mother had a hard time hearing you talking about that you know was going through like a a severe 
denial, which which is actually very understandable, you know, which is very human. Because I had always thought that she had heard me mm. because she'd called me a liar at some point. Mm. That I think the first time is when she called me a liar. But after that, it was basically similar phrasing, which felt like saying the same thing again. Mm. I think that's why I believed she'd always heard me. So when I worked yeah. on that story, I was like, all right, so 35 years later, why would I believe that just now is when she hears me, when you've been telling her forever? You know? Yeah, yeah. Because any conversation with her about sex was always just, my mother told me the facts of life when uh-huh. I was 10. I had to get up in the middle and throw up because she was so stressed out about sex. Uh, it's kind of yeah. why I do it's part of why I do what I do I'm like uh, there's got to be something there if you're if she's that freaked out there's got to be something going on so I became very interested in sex I yeah. started doing things like I would go to work with her during the summer I'd say I was going to the local movie theater I'd get on a bus and go across town in Roanoke Virginia go to the quarter loops with a yeah. roll of quarter which was my allowance and I would watch porno and the reason wow. I would do it was because I wanted to understand how it worked. Yeah, and my mom, the word sex, S-E-X, was like a four-letter word. It, it would instantly trigger alarm and upset in her. When I was 12, that's when I came out to myself. I said it out loud when I was 12, I am gay. So I was like, well, when can I tell my parents about this? And that same summer, I guess it was, Marvin Gaye's sexual healing was number one. And so we were playing it on the radio, and my mom walked in the kitchen and said to my sister, she took the little boombox there, and she said, when this song comes on the radio, the radio goes off. Oh my and she god. Clicked it off. And I was like, I ain't telling her anytime soon after she did that. You know what I mean? I think what that says is like maybe I don't want to be I don't think we want to be a cautionary tale, you and I, Kevin, but I think this is a really good reason to teach your kids about sex or not hide it. Because look yeah. at what we do for a living. Yeah. We talk about these things, the things we were told not to talk about. We we made this our life's work. If all they had right. to do was let Marvin Gaye play on the radio, would you be doing what you're doing right now? Right, right, right. And now they've got to deal with the fact that, oh, my God, now he's talking about it all the time. All the time.
That is all for this week's episode, my friends. This is Marvin Gaye behind me now. And we just heard from Dixie De La Tour. Oh my gosh, what an experience this has been. We're going to include more of the conversation between Dixie and I on our Patreon. We're also probably going to put up like the unedited version of the evening of Risk and Body. And also, if you check out Body Storytelling's podcast, they're going to be presenting some material from this entire engagement that that we haven't run at all as well. So check out the Body Storytelling podcast as well. It feels really nice to end. This has been, 2018 has been one of our best years ever, I think, in terms of content. We have put out some extraordinary episodes this year, and it feels really great to kind of end with these Body and Brooklyn shows. Now, of course, next week we'll go into our holidays programming. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll have some new Christmas and Hanukkah and that kind of stories that we're working up for you now. Also, speaking of that, J.C. Cassis, who was the producer of Risk, if you look her up at jccassis.com, she has a hilarious new comedy song out right now called Christmas is Bullshit. Uh, it's it's a great thing to add to your playlist to surprise people with a little anti-Christmas sentiment, but it's very, very funny. You gotta go look that up at jccassis.com. Also, if you want to come see us live, you can always find information about where Risk is appearing next at risk-show.com slash tour. One final idea for something you might like to buy for someone for the holidays are our classes. You know, there's a lot of certificates that you can get for people, gifts for the classes in storytelling that we teach at thestorystudio.org. You know, there are one-on-one sessions over Skype with our teachers, there are in-person workshops, or there are video courses that you can download in your own time, and of course there's our corporate workshops as well. That is all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. The weight of the world is love. Under the burden of solitude, under the burden of dissatisfaction, the weight, the weight we carry is love. But we carry the weight wearily, and so must rest in the arms of love at last. Must rest in the arms of love. No rest without love. No sleep without dreams of love. The warm bodies shine together in the darkness. The hand moves to the center of the flesh. The skin trembles in happiness, and the soul comes joyful to the eye. Yes, yes, that's what I wanted. I always wanted, I always wanted to return to the body where I was born.